This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses striving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, BlackRock on the power of public-private finance, why sustainable cities are hitting a wall, a look ahead to ESG in 2022, and why carbon offsets are still not quite ready for prime time. We're drawing down the year this week on 350. It's December 3rd, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Wow, right across the table, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Heather, welcome to Oakland. Hello, Joel. Good to see you in person. Good to see you in person, although I just saw you like three weeks ago in Glasgow. And uh, this is in Oakland where it's sunnier and all sorts of things and not uh, quite so heavy security Mm -hmm. uh, as we had in Glasgow. It's so good to have you here. And and, uh, you're here this week and over the weekend and early next week for a number of things just because we miss you. But we have our uh, our Green Biz annual year-end gathering, um, which is uh, in person. Uh, about 35 of us, not so, about a half dozen mm-hmm. people won't be there. But uh, meeting a lot of people for the first time, which yeah. is kind of cool. You know, I'm sure that many of our listeners have had the same experience. I actually have someone who reports to me who I have never met. And I am so excited to meet her this week. Um, I We'll have met her by the time this airs, but uh, haven't yet, so I'm still anticipating. But yeah, super excited to uh, see everyone and meet uh, not only her, but a lot of other people I don't know. It's awesome. This company is growing yeah. by leaps and bounds. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. But uh, lots of change here and uh, lots more to come in the new year, and we'll talk about that um, uh, and some future episode, maybe at the end of December or beginning of January, what's in store in Green Biz World for 2022. The short answer, lots. Um, But you know what? Let's stop looking forward when we can look back at the Week in Review. I'll start us, Joel, with a story that uh, our green finance analyst, Grant Harrison, contributed this week, one of the first pieces. Go, Grant! Uh, it's an interview with a gentleman from BlackRock, um, the person who runs the Climate Finance Partnership, a public-private fund that will target investments in Asia, South America, and Africa. And the gentleman is Ryle McNally. And um, it's just, a, I, I, I really particularly appreciated this piece because when I was in Glasgow, one of the themes that really stuck out to me was the need for more finance, right? And not only the obviously the negotiators were talking about the money or lack thereof that the countries are putting out, but what the private sector was going to do and how that would would stimulate or inspire the money from the countries. So BlackRock has this fund 
and they're focusing it on emerging markets with the idea of uh, putting it into climate-related infrastructure adapt adaptation efforts and so forth. And so that's, it's a great piece, um, talks about the, the where this catalytic funding is going to go, the sorts of uh, investments they're hoping to inspire. And um, it's, a, it's just a great piece that I hope, uh, and a great strategy that I hope others will emulate. Yeah, we, we've been hearing so much about finance. And as you said, in, in Glasgow at COP26, finance was one of the themes. And, and a lot of that is the money that rich countries should be paying to poor countries uh, to help finance the transition. But a lot of that is also just, you know, how do you invest in the in kinds of infrastructure that all countries are going to need, including the United States and EU and, and developed nations. Um, where does that money come from? How is it being leveraged between the public sector and the private sector? Um, and this uh, climate finance partnership that BlackRock has, is engaged in uh, is, I think, uh, a pretty interesting one. Um, you know, he, Ray, Ray McNally talks about... Uh, the mismatch between where climate-related capital is flowing and where it's most needed, and which is in emerging markets, and and, and some of that is philanthropy, where these where countries are paying other countries to do things. But a lot of it is solid business investment opportunities. And uh, you know, he says that emerging markets represent a growing share of global carbon emissions and a massive investment opportunity, but only a fraction of the global clean energy investment. So I think they're out to change that. Is uh, as you said, in working with uh, non-OECD countries in Asia, Latin America, and Africa, mm -hmm. some of which are among the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And, you know, it's it's higher-risk capital, um, And uh, but partnering with development banks, uh, uh, public sector institutions, uh, institutional investors, other institutional investors um, are going to buffer some of these risks. So uh, this is a really interesting peek into one company's strategy um, about, you know, how are we going to finance the transition? Yeah. And there were just two things that jumped out at me as we wrap this one up. One is that, the, that it initially was hoping to inspire 500 million and it easily exceeded that with 673 million. So it's, it doesn't sound like much money, but it, but to get this thing started, it, they did sort of oversubscribe. But I also didn't know BlackRock already manages one of the world's largest dedicated global renewable power platforms. Like, so it's got $14.5 billion and 34 emerging market economies across uh, one of the platforms that already is. So I, I guess I'm just coming to grips with how much money it does already have in some of these, these infrastructure projects, and, and, but also how much more can be done. So it's a great, it's a great effort. Well, I think it's safe to say that BlackRock has more money than you know who, but uh, <laughs> that's uh, another story for another day. But let's talk about another story here. This is one from our uh, intrepid uh, Washington, D.C. correspondent, Terry Yossi, uh, wrote about why sustainable cities are hitting a wall. And Heather, I'll let you take this one because I think this is uh, something that's uh, uh, right up your alley. So yeah, this this one really sh struck me because it it just reminds me how of how shall I dare I say clueless sometimes the sustainability community can be mm. about the realities of lower income uh, communities and what people need. And um, one of the the great sort of examples in this in this piece is that the mayor of Pittsburgh just you know he's he is William Pedetto I think I, I'm probably mispronouncing his last name but 
has done all sorts of amazing things when it comes to urban sustainability. You probably don't think about Pittsburgh as a, a bastion of that sort of thing, but it, it needs to change the economy there. Um, he's been doing a lot, but he lost his reelection bid uh, because, and even though he's a Democrat and he was that was what he was representing, because the the other candidate really talked about inclusivity, police reform, expanded economic opportunity, the, the fundamental, I, I, again, dare I say it, the, the things that inspired people to vote for he who shall not be named, <laughs> Donald Trump. I mean, so I think it, it's just another great example. Um, he goes on to give other examples. Boston is trying to have a more diverse labor pool, but they don't have enough people to go into these construction jobs that it's trying to, you know, it's trying to get up to a certain minimum. They're having trouble meeting it because they haven't done the, you know, the training and, and the unions are, you know, so it just, it's, it speaks to the uh, challenges of understanding what people really need and how do you balance those needs with what we're trying to do. Um, we need to listen more and to, to respond accordingly. Well, and it also speaks to uh, what I refer to as full spectrum sustainability, mm -hmm. looking at the social side, uh, because, you know, as cities are becoming renewably powered and, and cutting their waste and maybe going circular in certain ways, you know, as Terry points out, there's these, all these worsening trends around uh, many urban areas in the U.S. are resegregating as wealthy and largely white pe populations wall themselves off from other neighborhoods, uh, rising housing prices. We see it right out our window here in, in Green Biz headquarters in Oakland uh, that, you know, the, the homeless and the tent cities and, and just the squalor that has become all too rampant. Um, and, uh, you know, the decline of suburbs, which used to, were at one point some sort of safe haven, I guess, yeah. for certain people. Um, and and then the the impacts of pollution to uh, in low income communities, primarily of color. And so, you know, how do those become part of the sustainability agenda more than they have? And I think, uh, you know, and, and, and Terry spends a bit of time really focusing on the wealth concentration and and. He has some really interesting statistic here about uh, that according, this is data from the European Environmental Policy uh, and the Stockholm Environmental Institute, that by 2030, the poorest half of the global population will still emit greenhouse gases far below the level that would uh, yield a 1.5 degree temperature. In other words, the Paris Climate Agreement. The richest 1% and 10% of people who largely live in the bigger cities are set to exceed the Paris level, 1.5 level, by 30 times for the 1% and nine times for the 10%. And so, you know, it's it's not just that uh, there's inequality in living conditions, but there's very much inequality in the carbon emissions. And I think this is something that we just haven't paid enough attention to. Mm -hmm. So speaking of carbon, uh, one of the big out outcomes of of COP26 was something called Article 6. Article 6 existed before this COP conference. It actually was part of the Paris uh, Agreement. Uh, but what happened in, in, in Glasgow this year was uh, working out of some of the details of what it meant to have a meaningful, verifiable emissions reductions uh, and what are the guidelines, what are the metrics, and what are the how are basically countries going to be held accountable on, for offsets uh, of their uh, national determined contributions. And so um, our great senior writer, C.J. Klaus, uh, dove into this and, and uh, in her inimitable fashion and uh, broke it down for us. Um, and uh, I think you're looking at the part where she says... Uh, <laughs> 
uh, I broke it down for you and uh, uh, consider it my holiday gift. And remember <laughs> that I prefer red, especially a good Rioja, and chocolate-covered caramels are my favorite. I think there may be some in the offing for CJ. Um, but this is uh, one of those super, super geeky, nerdy kinds of, of, of things that's of utmost importance to companies as as you, you know, get further and further into carbon reductions and carbon offsets. How do we account for them? How do they get certified? How do we avoid double counting? How do we ensure additionality? Uh, it's frankly, a lot of it's over my head, um, but I'm really glad uh, that uh, that CJ looked into this. And, and by the way, while we're on the topic, uh, I want to give a plug for Associate Editor Jesse Klein's article, What the Passage of Article 6 Means for Carbon Markets, another take on on the outcomes from Glasgow. Uh, in fact, if you read the two of them together, they're a little yin and yang, but I think it starts to give you a full, increasingly full picture. What, any takeaways for you on this, Heather? Yeah, <laughs> they are yin and yang. And not surprisingly, um, Jesse talked to a lot of the folks responsible for uh, issuing and verifying offsets who are more uh, po- positive about <laughs> what happened than, than CJ. I love CJ's headline. I mean, this sort of says it all. Sorry, carbon offsets still aren't settled. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, n- number one, it is confusing. It's, it's, it's very complex. And number two, it isn't settled. There, there have to be a lot of negotiations, um, in particular, and this is for especially for our audience. Um, there's really, there hasn't really been anything settled on on what companies can say about the, about the uh, voluntary markets, and so we still have a big sort of um, question mark. Um, the good news is that it finally has the attention and maybe now the resources to figure it out. But we're far away from from doing this. Um, the only thing I think it really did say was that corporations should really use them sparingly, um, which, which I think we've been saying more and more um, over the over this year and, of course, last year, too. But um, it's becoming very clear that that's part of the big greenwashing debate, right? The offsets word is, is you use the word offsets in a press release and you're going to be scrutinized <laughs> big time. Anyway, great. I think they're both great pieces and a story that will continue to evolve um, because nobody's getting a 90 plus on their decarbonization test by hanging out behind the corner offset store, <laughs> vaping with their buddies rather than showing up for scope three decarb 101 and doing the actual work. Thank you, CJ, for making me laugh. Watch this space. The biggest stories to emerge from the COP26 talks in Glasgow, Scotland, was the obvious underrepresentation of women and Indigenous leaders in the dialogue. So now that the delegates, business leaders, activists, NGOs, and others have returned to their home countries, what needs to happen next? One proposal centers on the creation of an international law that criminalizes the destruction of our planet, an act called Ecocide. I'm joined by two women who are part of this movement. Jojo Meta is co-founder and executive director of Stop Ecocide International, the driving force and communication hub of a fast-growing movement to criminalize ecocide. And Julia Jackson is chair of U.S. Allies for Stop Ecocide and founder of the philanthropy Grounded, which is focused on advancing climate solutions, especially those being advanced by frontline communities. Julia and Jojo, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Hi there. Hi, thanks for having us. 
So I want to start by reflecting on COP26. Was it a failure? Jojo, you first. I have to say it felt a bit like there were two different COPs going on. Um, There was one kind of inside the conference compound if you like um where you know the the, the negotiators were, were were sort of pounding out this text that ultimately i feel represented pretty lukewarm progress um and you know i mean despite a number of interesting panels and so on in there there was a very different sort of vibe you might say in the the other part of cop which was the civil society side which was going on outside and in glasgow and mm-hmm. and that i think had a lot more hope and a lot more inclusion and a lot more action represented in it so that side of things felt very hopeful in comparison what about you julia i think that based upon globally reducing our emissions to well below 1.5 degrees Celsius, it was a complete failure. I mean, they did um, agree to halt deforestation in the next 10 years, but I mean, we should stop deforesting old growth now. As for the US, I feel like there's been a US cop out and the US is failing on their emissions reductions because just four days after COP, the Biden administration, Department of Interior, is there was a there's a lease sale for the oil and gas industry of 80 million acres off the Gulf of Mexico that no one even heard about because this case was filed in August. Um, and so you'd think that we would have been making noise about stopping this lease sale at COP and literally no one heard about this. And so this lease sale is going to go through by January 1st. And so now Yeah, it's just, to me, Mm -hmm. ridiculous that Mm -hmm. Biden on his campaign trail pledged to, like, basically reduce emissions by half in the next decade. And yet we're basically doing a a land grab for the oil and gas industry, the largest uh, lease sale in U.S. history, like the largest. So anyways, I think the U.S. is failing. I think a lot of countries are failing. But to not to seem too critical, civil society, the energy of civil society at COP26 on the ground was amazing and galvanizing all of these activists and different people that really care about doing their part because we can't leave it to governments to decide our fate. It has to be all sectors of society. And so that's why I really believe in harnessing the law to stop the destruction and hold leaders accountable. And um, I'm a huge fan of what JoJo's working on stopping Ecocide International as a solution to the climate crisis. Yeah, I I want to uh, just stay with COP for one second more because JoJo, you described the sort of two different COPs and I saw that too. Uh, Were women and indigenous peoples, indigenous leaders part of one of the COPs and not the other? I certainly think that there was better representation in the in 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 outside of the the security mm-hmm. lines, if you like, yeah. um, and I, and I think that you know in 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 regard to um, uh, what what COP is achieving or trying to achieve, it, it's almost like it feels like lots of people trying to play the same game slightly better, whereas actually what we're driving at is the idea of changing the parameters, effectively changing the rules so that people have to play the game differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seemed, that felt, felt like it was something that was sort of 
you know, missing in the in, in the negotiations, but nonetheless started popping up in conversations and panels, both inside and outside the blue zone, um, around mm. the, the, the context of ecocide. And and and, and our movement is very much a, a women-led movement. Yeah. So before we go into the to the movement, I, I just want to ask Julie a quick follow-up and and wh- where do you see the most effective way to include women and 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 the communities that I know that you that your organization helps represent? I mean, what, what, what would be the most effective way or meaningful way to include these people? I think there needs to be, um, we can't tokenize women in indigenous communities. They have to be at the seat in the negotiations and not just on stage talking because there are just 10 women in the negotiations rooms and we're determining the fate of our future in the hands of a lot of men. And I just feel like the negotiations themselves are pretty flawed for not including um, these communities and mm-hmm. also as well in the negotiations, like having yeah. youth. Youth, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, that's just my opinion that mm-hmm. I, negotiations need to change dramatically to be mm-hmm. more inclusive. Mm-hmm. So Jojo, how would criminalizing ecocide change this whole, di- like how would it change this dialogue? Because that's obviously what you're passionate about and where you're really focusing your energy, how would that shift the dialogue? How would it change things? Well, um, research shows that when you change environmental regulation, what you tend to change is corporate budgeting. Um, in other words, you know, how much is somebody maybe going to have to pay in fines or in court costs or all those kinds of things. Um, if you want to really change behavior, then criminal law is really important. Um, because, I mean, if you think about it, perhaps, your average war criminal isn't thinking about their public image, but your average corporate officer is thinking about it very deeply because, of course, you know, they don't want to be seen or, you know, in the same kind of bracket as a war criminal. Um, Effectively, that's going to be terrible for their stock value, for their investor confidence, for their insurability, for their reputation, the whole thing. And so actually having a kind of enforceable deterrent that is visible kind of on the horizon, you know, is is both a sort of sobering thing, but also something that can stimulate real change in the right direction. In other words, if people know that within a few years, they're not going to be able to take actions which threaten severe harm to ecosystems, then they're going to have to start getting creative about what we do need to do. So, you know, we can start sprinting in the direction that at the moment we're just crawling in. Nature doesn't really have any rights right now, though, does it? Does she? There are some jurisdictions around the world that have acknowledged legal personhood for certain landscape features or sacred sites. But in general, our legal system is hugely anthropocentric. Um, It's very much focused on people and perhaps even more focused on property. Um, And so, you know, we believe that actually criminalizing harm to nature takes a step towards effectively, um, you know, giving much more legal focus to nature and actually enables potentially in the future for that much broader change of acknowledging the rights of nature to become much more widespread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So speaking directly to the Green Biz audience, which is corporations, and I loved your, your, your mention of how, you know, how someone might view this law in a different way than a, than a regulation. You know, what advice would would each of you give to companies large and small about how to support this agenda, how to support not just the idea that that nature has rights, that that you shouldn't damage ecosystems, that that kind of behavior is criminal 
And, and also, you know, how, how this relates to this broader dialogue of we are all in this together. <laughs> you know, society is men, women, children, everyone of, of all races and ethnicities. Um, what advice would you give to companies? I'm actually going to go to you, Julia, first uh, for this answer. I think we need a paradigm and ethos shift so that we're more grounded and rooted in reverence and of the natural world. And so uh, the advice I'd give them actually doesn't, it's not about targets and emissions. It would be go outside, connect with nature, like start to fall in love with nature and recognize yourself in the web of life because um, we need keystone species. We need ecosystems. We can't just put all our eggs in ecutopia. We need to protect the planet and stop ecocide. So get outside, get grounded, like go develop a relationship with nature. And Jojo. I think I would say that, you know, perhaps the corporate world should not look at, you know, going towards sustainability as something that restricts them, but as something that potentially liberates them. I mean, as a former entrepreneur myself, I know that there's nothing like a clear set of parameters for unleashing creativity and innovation. And I think without that, there's a bit of a feeling of kind of flailing around, trying to get different results from doing the same thing, which as we know from, I think it's Einstein who said it, you know, that's madness. That's almost the definition of madness. If we have a clear framework, we suddenly have the parameters within which to get really creative and start to move in a new direction. Great. Well, thank you for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. And um, good luck with your work. I love, I love this focus. It's very uh, different. And I, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Heather. You just heard from Jojo Meta with Stop Ecoside and Julia Jackson with Grounded. As we head into December and begin to think about the end of the year and the year ahead, I thought it'd be a good time to check in with my friend Richard Madison, the president of S&P Global Sustainable One, the sustainability intelligence unit within uh, S&P Global. Hey, Rich. Hey, Joel. Good to be here. Good great, to see great you. To, great to see you in Glasgow a few weeks ago. Um, you know, as we think about all that's going on in the ESG and reporting and the green bonds and everything that's been happening in 2021. What, is, what do you think is happening in 2022? What's your prognosis for what companies need to be thinking about in the year ahead? Yeah, I, I think there's at least a couple of major themes. So I would say that first of all, we saw something pretty unique at Glasgow. So outside of the kind of, um, you know, country level commitments or, or otherwise, um, and I won't go into detail on that, we actually saw the private sector commitments being counted towards the world's reduction um, requirement, if you like, if we're to be on a one and a half degree trajectory. And, and that, that for me was different about this COP. And so I think that what does that really mean? It means actually that the private sector is going to be increasingly held to account as much as the policymakers are. 
Um, you know, five years ago, we had a moment in Paris. Uh, everyone agreed to a long-term goal of trying to limit global warming to preferably one and a half degrees. Um, and five years, six years down the line, there is an accounting, a reckoning uh, for the governments. And, and, you know, we'll see where we get to with that reckoning. But governments are being held to account, and, and probably rightly so. Um, but actually, given that the private sector has had its moment now, there's been a huge amount of commitments. Um, many, many companies making net zero commitments, many investors, 130 trillion of assets now committed to uh, being aligned with a net zero trajectory. Um, there will be uh, actually uh, an accounting coming um, because those commitments are very long term. And so I think 2022 will be about how do you turn long term commitments into near term action and how do you report on that? And so how do you actually really come up with a plan that will be well respected by those that are uh, willing to provide capital to finance those plans? Uh, and I think, you know, the, the truth is there are lots of uh, sector pathways being developed and lots of interesting intelligence being developed, but there isn't really one source of truth. Uh, there's no one standard way of doing net zero, and nor should there be really. We need as much innovation as possible. So I think 2022 will be a year of turning commitments into action, um, and we're really looking forward to seeing uh, how we can make progress on that front. So help me understand, if companies are being held accountable for the first time for nations' de you know, contributions to, to uh, the Paris Agreement, who's holding them accountable and what's that going to look like? Well, anybody signed up to a net zero commitment is actually signed up to the UN's appraisal of their net zero commitment. And that may not be obvious, but you know the, the race to zero commitment is actually uh, governed, if you like, by the United Nations, as is the GFANS commitment, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. That is sitting under the auspices of the United Nations. So, um, and, and as part of that governance, if I take the uh, sort of investor side, the banking side, the, the 130 trillion of assets signed up to net zero, um, there are requirements for those companies signed up to those commitments to be increasingly transparent about how they're turning those long-term commitments into near-term action. So next year, they're going to have to disclose targets and those targets are, are likely to be at the very least 2025 targets on, you know, what kind of what percentage of assets under management will be shifted to a net zero trajectory. So that's a big deal. If you've got 10 trillion dollars of assets under management, you, you're going to have to name a number of, you know, what what assets are going to actually shift to net zero by date. Um, and, and in order to do that, you really need to have some, some kind of near-term certainty about what the plans are to get you there and how you collaborate. And the difficult thing is, this is not something that each entity can do by itself. Um, you know, the finance sector can only reach these commitments by working with various sectors on sector decarbonization pathways. You can't achieve those commitments themselves. It's not like you can suddenly, you know, change the lights in your own office and that's totally within your control. These net zero commitments are often well outside the uh, general normal sort of control sphere of companies. And so it really is going to be uh, around collaboration and assessing the likelihood of transition um, and really thinking through what is a realistic plan to get to net zero. And I think that's presenting a challenge for many right now. 
So that's the from the perspective of the financial institutions and the money that they're putting into the marketplace. How about from the perspective of the companies that are receiving that money, or or just the companies in general, whether they're uh, you know getting bonds and loans or not, uh, in terms of how they might be held accountable for these commitments uh, next year? Yeah, well, I, th I think as as part of banks and invest and shareholders, you know, really looking at net zero commitments, they're going to be holding the companies to account. So for them to be clear about a 2025 net zero trajectory, they need the companies that they are financing to also be clear. So they're going to have you know, really much more acute information requirements around net zero, net zero planning of companies. And so that's going to be a, a real um, effort, I think, for companies to kind of step in time with their shareholders on these requirements. Uh, this is really the first time that we've seen, like, a, if you like, a, a self-imposed dual requirement for both companies and their shareholders at the same time. Um, so it's going to be fascinating to see how that dance works. And, uh, and I think for companies, they also face a pretty gargantuan challenge because for them, it's not just assessing their own operations. It's the same for them. They have to assess you know, second and third order effects such as supply chain and products um, if, if they're really going to have make a credible difference on net zero commitments. So we, we, we really are requiring like a, a step change at the same time from shareholders, from investors, from banks, from various others, uh, along with companies, along with their suppliers and along with their customers. So this is, this is going to be a very interesting um, year ahead, I think. Uh, another interesting thing that's that just happened in the last quarter of of 2021 was the uh, ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, that came out of the IFRS Foundation. All this acronym city here that, that it's supposed to be kind of uh, the end all be all for for sustainability reporting uh, across sectors, across uh, borders. Um, how optimistic are you that that is really going to be the game changer that we've all been waiting for? Well, I think it has to happen, first of all. So I, I actually think that unless you embed sustainability standards and accounting standards, we don't get anywhere. Um, is it the only thing that has to happen? No. I mean, I think there will be a lot of discussions around, uh, you know, the, the, the different dimensions of materiality. Um, and I, I think that is an argument that's going to be played out over time. Um, and I think that, uh, um, you know, the, the ISSB is going to have some challenges looking beyond climate because climate is, is a great place to start, really important place to start. But, you know, when you go to other elements of sustainability, there's going to be, you know, that argument around what is financially material, what is not financially material, what standards are effectively embedded or not. Um, that's going to get really tricky as, as you go further out into different parameters of, of the environmental, social and governance domain. And, and so I, I think they have a, a, a tough job, but I think it's entirely necessary and we need accounting standards. Um, I do also think that there is a need to keep an eye on things that accounting standards may not account for and, and continually evolve and do that because there are going to be things that companies may wish to report the accounting standards may not define. And that's always going to happen to my view. And in fact, that's the reason why accounting standards allow for um, in normal financial accounts, you know, a, a space for a narrative, a, a space for a company to present their own strategy, um, along with metrics they believe to be relevant for their company. 
in their sector. Um, and that should continue, I think, on the sustainability side. We need to allow for that space uh, and an evolution of understanding of sustainability because um, the accountants may save the world, um, but, but you know, they may not be able to provide the framework that covers 100% of what we want to know. So much to track, so many moving parts, uh, but so interesting. It continues to just be a fascinating space to watch. So we'll continue to watch that together and continue to talk about that throughout the year. Uh, Dr. Richard Madison is the president of Sustainable One, the uh, sustainability intelligence uh, unit of S&P Global. Thanks, Rich. It's always a pleasure. Great to talk to you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters, a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love your comments, your questions, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses striving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.